We're continuing today our summer psalms series. We like to take some time uh, every summer uh, to step back and spend some time in the book of Psalms. As Max has said, the psalms are not really a book that you kind of preach all the way through, which is a lot of times what we do in our sermon series. And so uh, in the summer, for the past three or four summers, we've had the chance to, to stop to really enjoy uh, these psalms that God has given uh, to his church. And we get to do that today with Psalm 30. So let me pray for us one more time, and then we'll dive in. Lord, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your word, and uh, we pray uh, that you would continue to form and shape uh, your church uh, today through this word. We thank you for it. We thank you for your love, for your character, for your faithfulness. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as my kids will tell you with a sad look on their face, I am not a dog person. Our family has never owned a dog. Spoiler alert, we probably never will. But I will say, in the last few years, we've reached a little bit of a compromise in that we started to watch other people's dogs occasionally when they go out of town. And a few weeks ago, we had the privilege of watching Bailey. Bailey is the dog of Matt and Anna Kim. And the kids were all very excited to watch Bailey. We had a great week with her. But one night, while we were watching Bailey, it was the middle of the night, and the door to me and Catherine's room swung open very abruptly. And it was our oldest daughter, Caroline. And she was very alarmed because according to her, the Kim's lizard was missing. And Catherine and I kind of woke up and, and we were like, Caroline, we're watching the Kim's dog and she's, she's right downstairs. They, they don't have a lizard. And Caroline, for, the, for those that know, that know her, she's very confident even while she's sleep talking. And she's like, yes, I know we are watching the Kim's dog. This is like the dumbest thing I've ever said. But we are also watching their lizard. And according to her, the lizard had climbed into the wall and was now lost. At this point, Catherine just rolled over and went back to sleep. But Caroline was like insistent. And so I was now awake enough to, to really be thoroughly enjoying all of this. And so I went into her room with her so that she could show me the part of the wall where the lizard allegedly had climbed into. And so we walked down the hall, we went into her room, and she started to point at the wall and finally she said, you know what, wait a minute, I think I'm actually out of it. And I said, yes, sweetie, I, I think you are. And she, she kind of laughed at herself and went back to bed in a much calmer state. See, Caroline had gone from being aware and oriented before she went to bed to really disoriented in the middle of the night to reoriented when she looked at her bedroom wall and realized there was no lizard and the lizard had not climbed into the wall. Now, besides the opportunity to tease my teenage daughter, and yes, she did give me permission to tell this story, I bring all this up because it reminds me of something that I've read before about the Psalms, and even today's Psalm, Psalm 30 in particular. The scholar Walter Brueggemann talks about the journey that many Psalms bring us through, a feeling of being oriented and then disoriented and then reoriented. It's a rhythm, I think, that happens in this Psalm, it happens in many Psalms, and really it happens all throughout the Bible. It's a rhythm, I think, that happens in our lives, and it's a rhythm that happens even as we observe the life of Jesus. Psalm 30 challenges us and encourages us as we walk through these rhythms thousands of years after this psalm was first sung. You know, we all know what it feels like to be disoriented. We've gone through, we're still going through in many ways, a very disorienting and confusing time. And today, in Psalm 30, we encounter the God who sometimes allows and even brings about disorientation, sometimes very painful disorientation, to get us to a, to a point of true and better reorientation. 
to get us to a place we didn't even know we needed to get to. And we'll see a few movements, I think, as we go through this psalm, which we'll take in three parts. This psalm, like many others, was written by David. And David, many of you know, was revered as the great king of Israel, but he was also a man who knew what it was to sin and knew what it was to suffer. So first, in verses 1 to 5, King David praises God for how he has delivered him from some sort of great trial. And then in verses 6 and 7, David will more specifically remember the predicament that he was in. And then in verses 8 to 12, David calls out to and once again praises the God who has delivered him. Let's start with verses 1 to 5, which Laurie just read, and I'll read this part again. It says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment. And his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. So David is standing on the other side of a great crisis, and he's looking back at what God has done for him. And in these first few verses, David is speaking to the Lord. You hear it three times. Oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord. David is recounting to God what God has done for him. And really what God has done is remarkable. One person pointed out that verse 2 is really the whole psalm kind of in, in miniature. David cries to God for help, and God healed him. It seems like David was experiencing some sort of grave sickness. In verse 3, David says his soul was brought up from Sheol, which was an ancient Hebrew understanding of one's place after death, and it was not a good place to be. David also says he was restored to life, meaning not that he was dead, but that he was indeed in a place where he was very close to death, perhaps even, in a sense, as good as dead. Close enough to death, according to verse 1, that it entered David's mind that his foes, and he had many foes, including even some in his own family at times, would rejoice over him if he died. But God has delivered him from this illness, delivered him from Sheol, delivered him from shame, delivered and restored him to life. And David is addressing all these things to God, but, you know, we all get to listen in. And I think that's, that's pretty cool, and I actually think it's kind of significant. Because what David is doing here is actually very similar to what we do when we gather together on Sundays, right? Think about when, when we sing, who are we singing to? Well, we're singing to God, of course, but there's another audience, and that audience is one another. And that is part of what lends great beauty to a group of people, a church that comes together and sings. It's not just that, that lots of people are, are praising God, although that is a wonderful truth, but it's also that so many people are listening in. And so when we praise God together, it's one of the ways that not only does God receive worship, but it's also one of the ways that we are formed more deeply into his people as we listen and as we sing to one another. And of course, this goes beyond Sundays. Anytime we recount the grace of God for others to hear. This is one of the ways that God encourages us and shapes us and forms us. And part of this formation is not just recounting what God has done, but showing how what God has done ties in with who he is, ties in with his character. And that's part of what David gets at in these next few verses. He calls those around him to join with him in praising God, sing to him, praise his holy name. And why? Because his anger is but a moment but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. What David is doing here is, is pressing beyond 
what God has done for him in this situation, pressing beyond that and through that to God's very heart and character. David doesn't skip over God's anger. God indeed does get angry, righteously angry, perfectly angry at at sin, at injustice, at the things that rightfully dishonor him. But at the same time, God delights to show favor and mercy. He just loves to do it. Just like you love to show favor and mercy to your kids if you have kids, or your loved ones, or your good friends, so much more does God delight to do this for his people, including in this situation, David. And if you are here today and you are trusting in Jesus, I hope you all are, but if you're not, I plead with you to put your trust in him. But I want you to leave today knowing that God's smile and favor is upon you as his people. Yes, there are going to be ways that that God challenges you and convicts you, probably even today. Some things later in this passage might even challenge and convict you, but know that he delights, delights to show you kindness and mercy. And that's one reason we always end our services the same way, with a benediction, with a word of blessing. God wants you to go into the week that's going to be full of challenges and trials, knowing that he loves you and his blessing is upon you. And to draw this out, David compares God's anger and God's favor to the night and the day. Weeping may may tarry or stay for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Eventually, morning comes. But sometimes the night is long. Sometimes in a very real sense. Some of you are in the insomniac club with me. And at times you're up all through the night. I've talked to some of you about this. It's hard. And when you can't sleep, it seems like the night will just never end. It goes on and on. And I think the same is even more true of our sorrows and sufferings. Things just stay with us, and they're really hard. Remember, as you read and hear this psalm, that David is standing on the other side of a challenge in his life. He was in a season of joy after a season of weeping. You might be in a similar season right now, a season of joy and restoration. You're kind of like pumping your fist, right, along with David. That's awesome. But also, you might be in a season of weeping, in a season of crying out to God, in a season perhaps of wondering if he even hears you when you cry out, and this passage is going to hit you differently as a result. That's okay, because the good news about God's character, unlike our circumstances, God's character does not change. And because God's character does not change, as we press in to God's character, we see our struggles for what they are. Very difficult, very scary, very real, but not the final word. And this knowledge allows us to be honest about our struggles and even to consider how God might be shaping us in the midst of them. And that's why verses 6 and 7 are so important. Listen to what David says. He says, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. So having described how God saved him, David now goes back to what God saved him from. He goes back to the time when he began to be disoriented, when things began to turn upside down in his life. We know that David was suffering. We know that David was seemingly sick. And sometimes in the Bible, sometimes in life, it's the case that we suffer not directly because of anything that we've done, but just because we live in a world full of suffering. But there are times when we suffer as a result of foolish things that we do. And the causes are often very complex and unclear. When it comes to other people's sufferings, and and even my own, I've come to learn there's usually a lot more going on than what meets the eye. So it's very good to be slow to draw any sort of conclusions about what has triggered a person's suffering. But in this case, 
David is evaluating his own life, and he has some insight into his own life and what was going on before his crisis. And really, it's, it's the combination of two things that very often go together, prosperity and arrogance. Remember the life of David, the youngest child, not seemingly destined for greatness, even when he was anointed as the next king. You might remember he went through a long stretch of, of living on the run, of being persecuted, chased down, not really even having a place to lay his head. The king before him, Saul, wanted him dead and gone. But God, of course, preserved him and helped him and eventually led David to great heights, great prosperity. The undisputed and, and beloved king of Israel, a kingdom that was growing at that time in power and influence. David, by all accounts, was doing very well. And so David was, was prospering, but it seems like from this psalm he was beginning to forget what he and his people had been warned of so long ago, right after they left the slavery of Egypt from Deuteronomy 8. Verse 11 says, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then in verse 17, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me all this wealth. This is a typical attitude, right, for us to take as human beings. We tend to think that we're the ones that bring about any sort of success that we have, and that means when things are going well, we're prone to pride and arrogance. Derek Kidner, a Bible scholar, puts it like this, easy circumstances and careless outlook are rarely far apart. Now, I've shared this before, but it's just so instructive to me. There was a, this really fascinating study done a few years back that involved my favorite board game, Monopoly. Love that game. The experiment, this would really frustrate me if I was part of this. The experiment involved bringing two random people into a room and observing them as they played a game of Monopoly, but there was a catch. At the beginning of the game, they would flip a coin, and the winner of the coin toss would gain a series of advantages. The winner would get twice as much money to start, the winner would get double the salary when he passed go. $400 every time he passed go. That's great. And he gets to roll two dice while the other player only got to roll one. And what happened was, during the games, the difference in behavior between the two players was dramatic. The rich player talked a ton of trash during the game. The rich player spoke more rudely to the poor player. The rich player even ate more of the bowl of pretzels that were put on the table. And the best part about this is at the end of the game, the researchers asked the rich players to talk about why they won. And the reason that they gave primarily was that they won because they had the best strategy. <laughs> An article was written to describe this study, which included several other experiments. And it summed it up by saying, wealth and abundance give us a sense of freedom and independence from others. The less we have to rely on others, the less we may care about their feelings. This leads us towards becoming more self-focused. Obviously, this was a secular study, but there's a ton of biblical truth in this. Their prosperity, even in monopoly, had led them to be less truly human. Bible teacher Beth Moore said it well when she said, woe to those who mistake God's marvelous help for their marvelous selves. I think this is something that we just need to wrestle with, especially to the extent that we enjoy some sort of prosperity in this life. I talked earlier about the Psalms disorienting and then reorienting us 
And prosperity is one area where we often need to be reoriented, disoriented and reoriented. Because it's easy to think of prosperity as just good, 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 to say we're blessed and to be happy about it. But the Bible, I think, just wants to complicate things a little bit and have us ask some questions about what that prosperity may be doing to us. And so if you're enjoying some sort of prosperity, and many of us are as suburban Americans, certainly, it's good and right to enjoy what God gives us. But it's also good for us to ask how that prosperity may be shaping us, to ask ourselves diagnostic questions. Like, are, are we becoming less sympathetic to others who aren't prospering? To ask, you know, is, is my heart softer or is it colder towards the poor and marginalized? Have we started to think, you know, that if everyone would just work hard like us, then things would go well for them? Are we more generous or less generous than we used to be? Are there things that used to seem like luxuries that now seem like necessities? We ask ourselves these questions when we are prospering, and we ask ourselves these questions not in a legalistic way to earn God's favor, not to spend all of our time in self-analysis, or to find out exactly where the line is that we can or can't cross. We ask questions like this to pursue true wisdom and true life and to consider how we can be shaped more and more towards what God has for us rather than what suburban, consumeristic America has for us. And as is so often the case, what's true of individuals can also be true of churches. It was certainly true of God's people in Israel. I didn't bring it up at the beginning of the passage, but you may have noticed that this psalm was used at the dedication of the temple. And we don't have a lot of details on this, which dedication it was and when it happened and all that. But, you know, there's a certain irony here in that the temple, which was a good blessing from God for his people, eventually became to the Israelites the thing that they relied upon rather than God himself. They would think, we have the temple, we're good. Nothing can move us, nothing can shake us. And rather than reliance upon God, the Israelites drifted into arrogance about being God's people. And of course, this is still a temptation, right? Churches have to ask themselves, what are those things that can lead us towards self-confidence? That we think we have the right theology, the right kind of preaching, the right kind of music, the right stances on controversial issues, that there's more people here than there were 10 years ago. It can be easy for churches, especially when things feel like they're going well, to look at these things and begin to think, we thank you, God, that we are not like these other people. We thank you, God, that we are not like these other churches. And this is where David found himself, self-confident, drifting from dependence on God, drifting from what God had made him to be. And God, in his love for David, would not let it continue. And so God disrupts things and reminds David of where his prosperity has come from by withdrawing the sort of tangible blessing from David that we saw. David says that God hid his face from him, and because God does this, David has become now disoriented. And now he is being reoriented. It was the Lord's favor that allowed him to prosper, he realizes. And rather than God's kindness shaping him towards humility, it had shaped him towards arrogance. And the fruit of this reorientation comes in two parts, with David crying out to God, and God answering David, which we see at the end of our passage in verses 8 to 12. It says, To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth. You have clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. 
O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So I don't want to get too far into the trials of like sermon prep, but one of the things you can wrestle with when you're preaching, or really anytime you're preparing to teach the Bible, is where to break up a passage. And usually you'll break up a passage when there's some sort of turning point. And so in this case, in Psalm 30, you could definitely break up the passage at verse 11. You have turned for me my morning into dancing, and I think that would be fine. But I actually think verse 8 is an even better turning point, because this is the point where David really seems to be reoriented to who God is and who he is. Because the person we see in verse 8 is not a person who is strutting around, confident in himself. The person we see in verse 8 isn't thinking about how he's better than everyone else. The person we see in verse 8 is approaching God on the only basis that is truly possible, on the basis of God's kindness and mercy and care for his people. David, who had been confident that, that he would stand forever, is now crying out to the Lord as he nears death. And he appeals to God to save him, not so that he can return to a life of self confident ease, but so that he can praise God and tell others of his faithfulness. He won't be able to do this, he says, if he's dead. Basically, David is appealing to God's interest in God's people. And this is a way of grappling with God we see in other places in the Bible. Moses appeals to God in a very similar way, reminding God that if if he wipes his disobedient people off the earth, then others will be given an opportunity to doubt God's faithfulness. Others might think less of God. Others might think less of God's character. And this is true because God has bound himself together with his people in a greater way than two wonderful friends are bound together, in a greater way than a brother and sister are bound together, in a greater way even than a husband and wife are bound together. God has bound himself together with his people. And that is such good news for his people because God will surely deal with us according to his good character. And David implores God to save him so that rather than going down to the dust, rather than his voice going silent, instead he will be able to lift his voice and speak and attest to God's faithfulness. And eventually David goes beyond this sort of grappling. And in verse 10, as one commentator says, look, argument is dropped and David is simply a man in need with only grace to appeal. And while God himself does not play uh, the role of an audibly speaking character, in Psalm 30, we see that he is surely not silent. And we see that in verse 11. Even though God has hidden his face from David, he hears David when he cries out. And now God has turned David's mourning to dancing. God has taken David's sackcloth, a symbol of mourning, and clothed him with gladness. David is exuberant. And exuberance, you know, we Presbyterians could probably stand to gain a little bit of. That's a different sermon for another time. But for now, you might recognize that language of taking off and putting on taking off sackcloth, putting on clothing David with gladness. That is actually really significant biblical language. And some people think there's a passage in the New Testament that echoes this language, where the biblical author Paul is pointing out the transformation that happens, that God brings in our life when we follow him. We put off certain things and put on other things. And I think when we see that, it helps us to understand that God hasn't just transformed David's circumstances, he's transformed him and in this transformation, David's life has gone wonderfully from smug self-confidence to humble praise. And where he once thought in his prosperity that he would stand firm forever, now he will humbly praise and give thanks to God forever. And so we've seen really quite a journey from David looking back and standing on the other side of a great trial, exuberantly praising his God who has saved, restored, and transformed him 
David has moved from orientation when he was confident in himself to disorientation when he was suffering and all seemed lost to reorientation when he was delighting in God's goodness all in the space of 12 verses. So it's a lot <laughs> for a short psalm. But I'm glad it's all here because there are a bunch of people, different people here today, right? And all of us may be at different points in this psalm. Maybe you're cruising along in your prosperity. Psalm 30 is here to humble you. Maybe you're here in a period of disorientation and suffering, a period of night, a period of sorrow, and Psalm 30 is here to encourage you and remind you that in following God, he is with you in this trial, and he will surely restore you. That joy comes in the morning, even though the night seems so hard and so long. And maybe you're on the other side of a great trial, like David, and Psalm 30 is here to remind you that that deliverance is indeed from God. And now your privilege is to sing praise to him, to recount his goodness to him and to others. Or maybe you're somewhere between all those places. No matter where you are, Psalm 30 reminds us of God's character, a character that both cares about our circumstances and also transcends all of our circumstances. Psalm 30 is in many ways the shape of your life if you are one of God's people. Psalm 30 is in many ways the shape of the life of the church. And Psalm 30 also reflects the shape of the life of Jesus. Jesus knew what it was like to cry out to God in all of these ways. Jesus knew what it was to be driven to the point of death. Jesus knew what it was to plead for mercy. In reality, you can envision Jesus singing all of Psalm 30, except for that one verse, verse 6. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Jesus was certainly tempted to think that way, but of course he did not. But what he did do, just as God bound himself together with his people in the Old Testament, was bind himself with his people in his life and his death. And so Jesus lives a life of humility in the place of our lives that often drift towards arrogance. Jesus numbered himself not with the proud and the prosperous, but with the weak and the struggling. Jesus heard his friends self-confidently say they would never forsake him, only to be betrayed. Jesus experienced the hiddenness of God, his Father. Jesus cried out on the cross and was forsaken and went down to the grave. And as Jesus lay in the grave, those that loved him wept. You know, the sun set twice while Jesus lay dead in the grave. And it seemed like the night had won. But on that Sunday morning when Jesus rose, joy replaced weeping, dancing replaced mourning, and gladness replaced sackcloth. And so the story of Psalm 30 is in many ways the story of Jesus, the story of God's people, and really the story of everything. The story of this world is a story of orientation with God and his people together in the Garden of Eden, of disorientation, a fall into sin and suffering and chaos and reorientation, someday a new heavens and a new earth where there are no more tears and there is no more night. And just as we are bound together with Jesus in his life and in his death, so also we are bound together with him in his resurrection. And when God's word brings some, some necessary introspection and even as our circumstances change and even as we change, we remember, as I heard one pastor say, you are not your worst moments, you are not your best moments, you are Christ, bought by his blood, and held by his resurrected hands. Christian, this is the good and true story that you are part of. Jesus is our confidence. Jesus is our life. And it's the story of his goodness and kindness that we recount to God 
that we recount to one another. And it's a story we invite others to live in as well. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your persistent kindness with your people. As we consider David, as we consider the self-confidence that, that many of us can relate to at times, we are so thankful that you disrupted him in the ways that you disrupt us as well so that we can be reoriented, so that we can see your goodness again, so that we can see it afresh, so that we can delight in your mercy and so that we can share it with others. Lord, even now as, as we sing, Lord, help us to sing to you. Also help us to hear as others sing to us and remind us of your greatness and your goodness and your kindness. And we pray, Lord, that you would send us from here reminded of your great blessing and your great favor upon our lives. Give us a, a humble joy as your people as we go from here today, wherever it is you call us tomorrow. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.